You're listening to A Private View with me, Maeve Doyle. Uh, we are here in the second lockdown where, ironically, we always get the most interesting interviews. People's schedules slow down. Uh, they don't get to travel to art fairs. And there's a chance to talk. So I'm not suggesting there's a silver lining, but if there were one, today's interview with Josh McDonald, the North American director of Maddox Gallery, is one of those silver linings. Welcome, Joshua McDonald. I gave you your introduction as the North American director of Maddox Gallery. You've been at the helm of the Robertson Boulevard Gallery throughout lockdown, and I am hearing from artists and colleagues and collectors that your involvement with Maddox has has only strengthened their position in Los Angeles, which can be quite a tough city. So this is a long preamble, but my point is, how did you get your start in the art? We have you here and now, but I want to hear what led up to this. Yeah, so my art career actually started off Working for my uncle, whose name is Richard McDonald, he is an incredibly talented uh, figurative sculptor based in Monterey. And um, originally I started off kind of being like a janitor for him um, at his foundry. I was actually moving some artwork uh, for an exhibition that he was hosting in Las Vegas. And uh, during that time, I had a, a job to kind of like, you know, lead people into the gallery and uh, I was giving a presentation of my uncle's work really for the first time ever to uh, a, a person who was just enjoying. And my uncle had overheard me and said, wow, you've got quite a knack and a passion for it. Uh, would you ever consider coming to the galleries and working part time? And I emphatically said yes, of course. And um, I was moving back and forth between uh, Las Vegas uh, at my uncle's gallery there at the Bellagio Hotel and uh, Monterey while I was in grad school. And I just fell in love with it. I fell in love with the experience um, uh, of introducing my uncle's work to people who are obviously I'm incredibly passionate about. And I worked for him um, as a sales consultant and then was an assistant director and then spent my last three years as the director of the two locations there in Las Vegas. And after a period of time, I, um, I, I, I got kind of, not not bored per se, but uh, you know, I got it was one artist and one medium, and I loved and respected him so much. But I, I wanted to experience a little bit more um, diversity in the artists that I represented in different mediums. And uh, there was actually one gallery um, at the time that I had a huge passion for, from I don't know their marketing capabilities to their the artists that they represented in the way that they portrayed them as artists and expressed their stories. And uh, I was actually unit London. So um, I moved to London for um, just over a year. And then uh, obviously complications with COVID happened and um, I needed to move back to the US. And um, one of my other favorite galleries was uh, Maddox Gallery. And I had collectors and, and friends in common with that gallery and had some great conversations with them and just so happened to have moved to uh, West Hollywood in California and uh, the gallery is five minutes from here. So it just it just worked out, it fell into place and I've been very happy ever since. It's a funny 
thing, when people ask, how do you make it in the art world, what you've just described is more realistic than anything I can hear that has a formula to it. Often it's being constantly prepared and then getting lucky and taking an opportunity. And from starting with your uncle at what must have been an incredibly young age, because I know you're quite young now, uh, and seeing Cirque du Soleil and the ballet and being introduced to all of these colorful kind of uh, performers and models and, and places and things that your uncle, uh, Richard McDonald, is involved in, mm -hmm. and then and then taking a chance to move to a new country, taking on a new a new gallery, that sort of getting caught by a pandemic, ending up in Los Angeles, and being prepared to take on the massive gallery that Maddox is on Robertson. That's what I I mean when I say, how do you plan something like that? How do you tell a business? consultant that this is your career path yeah i, I don't it's think it's funny how cultural no yeah. no and that's there's a certain tenacity and self-belief and strength of character and and positive thought process that seems to go along with people who have solid careers in the art world can you speak on that at all um yeah you know i i've just always kind of uh chased every opportunity that has come to me and i obviously suggest that people do the same because the next thing you know you've you've fallen into your passion you know life sort of guides you in uh in in the right direction and um i, I legitimately did just fall into the art world it's always been a part of my life i mean my family on both sides um uncles an architect grandfather was an illustrator grandmother was a plein air painter i just happened to miss the uh the creative uh gene really but I think that, um, I mean, fate perhaps had something to do with it because I was just going with uh, the flow and opportunities that were continuously presenting to me. I was always curious about everything. Um, and uh, I've picked up and found a passion, which I'm so, so happy for um, because it's, it's never work for me per se. It's, it's always something that I look forward to on a day to day basis. I'm, I'm going to just pick up on something you said about the creative gene missed you. And I would just argue that the best dealers historically, the Betty Parsons, the Leo Castellis, the Ileana Sonibans, tend to have a, a history. They live their life creatively. They're nonconformist. They seem to have an artist mentality. Even Mary Boone, they have an artist mentality. They thought about being an artist, but then they realized the true art to their life was bridging the world of the artist with the world of the collector. You seem to have the unique ability, well, unique among some certain dealers, common among dealers that are very good, to be able to walk on both sides of creative and business. It's an interesting balance of the ideologies of an artist and the business acumen of finance people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I have to agree with you. I've always sort of said that I'm a, a middle-brained person, not so much on the left, not so much on the right. I, I do have a creative outlet. I, I guess I have to retract that statement. Um, I'm quite good with like spatial intelligence. I, I quite enjoy curating shows and um, so yeah, I suppose so. And um, I appreciate you uh, even remotely comparing me to the names that you just mentioned. Uh, those are some of obviously my 
my heroes, Leo Castelli being one of them. Um, I just love the way that he was so respectful for the artists. It wasn't about the financial gain. It was about uh, moving art into the future. And um, I, I, I read uh, Boom uh, about the contemporary art market and fell in love with- Michael uh, Schneerson's yeah, book. Yeah, yeah. Fell in love with uh, Leo Castelli and um, just the way in which he he managed and helped artists. It was, uh, it's, he's become uh, an icon and a legend to me in my career path. Well, we have that in common. Mm -hmm. He was a true gentleman. Yes. That, that's absolutely for sure. And American art has a lot to thank him for, for nurturing the Rauschenbergs and the yeah. Jim Dines oh. and all the other people that he seemed to have time and patience for. And in a world where time is money, the patience that Leo Castelli gave artists is remarkable. Absolutely. With artists, when, when I think about the way you navigate the art world and the art market, I first heard about you, and my producer Korish can attest to this, when we were doing a interview with Justin Bauer. And then I heard about you again from Devin Desjardins and Lefty. Uh, I, I even heard about you from someone who went to the same school that I went to in Vancouver, a sculptor named David Spriggs. Artists don't often speak warmly. Well, let me retract that. Mm -hmm. To have that kind of warmth and closeness with artists takes a lot, especially in this post-internet generation when they can ostensibly do much of their work on their own. What do you think helps you uh, develop the loyalty? How do you navigate those relationships and work on both sides of it with the artist and with the money people? Yeah. Um... I mean, in one word, it's, it's relationships. What I've heard so often, um, being a dealer or somebody that, uh, you know, helps and assigns artists to galleries, I've heard terrible things. That there's so much attention given to them. They want them, they want them, and then they get them on board and they sort of become backseat and they're on to the next person. Um, I think that what I- Like I've... a bad boyfriend. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> exactly. Um, you know, what I've done, uh, I suppose, differently, it was really just being myself. I, I com communicate with all the artists who are not just artists to me, they're, they're friends um, on a regular basis. You know, um, I, I probably talk to David Spriggs every other week, just checking in with them. He's such a fantastic artist, a, a great human being. Um, Devin Dijardin has become like a very close friend of mine here in Los Angeles. Um, and I'm incredibly grateful for that uh, incredible human being. Um, uh, watching him at such a young age um, and where he is in his career as a self-taught artist is just mind-boggling to me. Um, right now, he's... I agree. Yeah, he sort of... Uh, he had the series that he was working on and he is moving away from that but keeping the same style and just seeing that transformation and the growth and and the vision is just like, it's super exciting. So, I mean, I, I talked to Devin probably on a daily basis mm -hmm. and Justin Bauer, uh, Justin Bauer was someone that I saw in a PDF and normally PDFs, you know, they don't, they can't move you the same way as they do when you see the work in person. But there was something so captivating about his pieces, the the, the level of energy, the the diffraction of the, the, the human face. And, um, and then I read about him and I became even more in love. So when I went to visit his studio, 
he welcomed me into a studio in Santa Ana. I mean, you cannot help but to be just captivated by every single work of art. Uh, so yeah, great, great artist. You know, he's people. what led me to you. He's what led me to you, Justin Bauer. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, I got a message saying, could I please write some questions? He was, he's dealing with a lot. And when I delved into his work and then I met him and the issues around mind control and um, brain implants and conformists and our relationship with technology, I thought of Corey Archangel, I thought of Trevor Piglin, I thought of so many very, very current artists. I'm like, this guy is phenomenal. Yeah. After speaking to him and hearing him talk about you, not talk about his work as well, mm -hmm. I thought I've got to speak to you. And I think that's why I probably stalked your phone for about three weeks trying to get you on the right time. Well, I, I really appreciate being here. And, and Justin, if you're listening, I really appreciate that as well. I, I, I'm, I'm, I hold you dear to my heart, my friend. So I know that the artist that we're going to sort of talk about on the rest of this podcast will be some of the ones you've recommended. We're going to talk about Lefty. We're going to talk about Justin, Carl Hopgood, who's been up through lockdown, mm -hmm. uh, Devin. But I wanted to switch it a bit uh, and ask you about museums. Museums are in a bit of a, I mean, they're suffering from the pandemic. Yeah. And I, I love museums. I think they they change people's lives and yeah. they raise your consciousness and they die. You dive. There's you can't see on a PDF what you see in front of a Titian when you're standing before it. Uh, what museums, Josh, do you visit again and again, and why? You know, I, I've I've had the privilege of viewing museums uh, all over the world. Um, some memorable ones for me was the National Gallery in Chicago Square in London. Uh, let's see, I, I loved the Gardner Museum in Boston. Um, the story about the theft of those pieces has always been something that was just uh, exciting. It's, it's unfortunate, of course, but uh, quite exciting, just that, that whole journey. Um, and one of my favorite artists is actually in there, who's John Singer Sargent, and one of my favorite pieces, Eleleo, um, is there. Um, but I think that the museum that I've always gone back to um, has been the Broad. Uh, here in downtown Los Angeles. Um, one, you approach the building and it's just this incredible um, architecturally designed, uh, I think it was by uh, Scofido and Rafindo, I think. I um, apologize, I'm probably mispronouncing both those names, but um, it just looks like it's floating above Grand Ave. So that was, uh, that was just the first introduction just leaves you kind of in awe. Um, and it was actually the the first museum that I saw both Jasper Johns, who I'm a huge fan of, and and Mark Bradford. Um, so another good one. Another great one, yeah, absolutely. Um, mm. I think that I've uh, more the more that I read about the Broad, I'm I'm a huge fan of their lending library. I think that artwork is obviously supposed to be viewed. I think that that's what the artists would have wanted, you know, is for their pieces to be on display for uh, the general public all over the world to see. And so their lending program is is quite special to me um, and how they've assisted other galleries and museums around the world in, in, in showing their collection. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's amazing. 
I'm going to honor my word and keep you within the time frame that we agreed upon before we began mm -hmm. and, and ask you as we close, if you were to choose only one work to live with for the rest of your life, what would it be? <laughs> Such a tough question to answer. Um, one, one of my favorite artists uh, of all time, her name is Helen Beard. Uh, she's a UK based artist. And I, um, I would have to say it would be it would be her work. Um, she kind of combines all of the techniques that uh, excite me. Um, abstraction, figurative work, um, intimacy, block fields, it, it, the whole thing is something that just moves me every single time I see them. She uses these bright, bold colors. Um, her her heavy oil marks on the canvas kind of like bend and fold. So the way that the light hits them at different periods of the day, I mean, I'm looking at one right now. Um, it's just, they bring me so much joy and happiness. So, I mean, I, I think that that would be, uh, I think that would be the artist that I, I could look at for forever. And you have to mention her ability to paint sex <laughs> right? <laughs> the... and sexuality and what sex in a body feels like mm -hmm. and what bodily sensations feel like. This is amazing. Yeah. I mean, she's, she's truly remarkable and an incredibly kind human being. Um, I, I've had the pleasure of meeting her several occasions and she's just a spectacular person. I sort of love the the shock and awe that people see when they look at the pieces, but then when you when you give them the backstory and the purpose of recreations, I think that people connect to them much more. Um, even even the subtleties, like I said, the 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 heavy oil marks are they bend and fold, and they're actually supposed to resemble the sensation of a fingerprint and, and touch. So it gives it this other dimension that uh, that the viewer can can see and feel. Thank you, Joshua McDonald, for spending some time with us. Uh, I hope to speak to you again. In closing, when how can people reach you in Los Angeles, and when will you be in London again? <laughs> as soon as I am able, um, I'm going to be back in London, one of my favorite cities in the world. So I, I hope that the, that the second that everything is cleared up, I'll have a plane ticket booked and I'll be out there. Um, well, Obviously, let me know because I'll have you on the show again. I would love it. I would love it. Yeah, I mean, uh, you can obviously follow Maddox Gallery on social media platform and um, you can always reach out to me in email format or info at Maddox Gallery. That, that's all it works as well. Thank you for this 8 a.m. call, Los Angeles time, 4 p.m. England time, and I hope to speak to you again soon. I look forward to it, Maeve. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to A Private View with Joshua McDonald, North American Director of Maddox Gallery. Uh, we have put a compilation together of the artists that he spoke of, some of the artists that he spoke of during the interview. Have a listen to them now. Uh, thank you, Kurosh Adhami, for producing the podcast. We'll be back next week. If you like it, please subscribe. Until then, this is Maeve Doyle saying goodbye from A Private View. Today, I have the privilege to, of talking to artist Justin Bauer. Hello, Justin. How are you? I'm really thrilled to meet you. Uh, it, it was a deep dive into your work that messed with my head, so I'm now terrified, too. <laughs> well, thank you for having me. It's, uh, it's an honor. It's... Um, I mean, I'm just uh, I'm thrilled to, to be talking about, uh, about art with you.
Did I get your introduction right? Uh, yes, you did. I, Seems I've, pretty good. I've read Street Artist and Los Angeles Street Artist and a book titled that you're on the cover of. Is there is there more to your development as an artist that I've missed out on? I don't think so. I mean, I I, um, I, I wouldn't say I reject the uh, the idea that I had any sort of um, come up, uh, you know, coming up through street art or anything. But for some reason, you know, after my first show with Dace, um, people liked to uh, to put me in that uh, in that category, which I didn't feel was correct. But I think I've kind of come out as a more you know dealing with the the, the figure uh subjectivity and uh and technology more than it has anything to do with uh, uh kind of a street art uh, feel so my intro was perfect and i just messed it up by asking the question it's sort of what you're saying <laughs> <laughs> let me go to question one before i before we go any further I I had a great time researching you, as I said, and talking to different art dealers like Patrick Painter about you and your career. Uh, But the first thing I want to do is take you back to kind of American story, which is very important right now with the politics Mm -hmm. and the coming election. Can you tell me about your childhood, the influences, your parents and the cultural atmosphere in San Francisco in the 80s? Well, my father, I believe, I think he always wanted to be a, a, a Charles Dickens of, of sorts. But he came from a, uh, a broken home, so he went uh, kind of a more stable route, which was an attorney. But he loved writing, and my mother was actually a dancer, ballet sort, and uh, and then uh, entered into modeling in uh, in San Francisco. So I was, yeah, I, I think I was introduced to life uh, in that bohemian feel and and then it, it kind of uh, evolved into more of a, a just the typical uh, suburban uh, kid in the 80s so I, ha- I have those bones i suppose as far as uh being in the humanities and the arts and stuff but uh, <clears throat> we moved uh from san francisco down to, uh, santa Ana, though about five six years after i was born so so we kind of took that, uh, I think my parents took that vibe and brought it to the suburbs. And um, and I guess, you know, the rest is history. So your mother was a dancer, your father was a lawyer. That's a nice mix, mm-hmm. a great balance. And I imagine there was incredible conversations. I, I, I think I look at your work and I see uh, detail and a, a very clear, focused vision. I have to ask, did you grow up with a lot of discipline in your family or were there more open-minded West Coast values? Actually, a little bit of both. My parents believed in, in I mean, for instance, you know, we weren't allowed to, to watch TV during the week. It was uh, So I, I would find myself uh, late at just drawing for the sake of, if, if anything. And my dad uh, and mom had, uh, my mom was a big uh, dig, as you can imagine. She was a dancer that and he paint dancers and my dad what just loved uh history and uh and art history and so i would i would go and uh and uh mostly try to basically copy you know the, the masters and so i and i also was uh was big in the sport father was um 
actually recruited to uh, to play for the uh, Red Sox uh, in baseball. And uh, however, it was during the Vietnam era, and so he was shipped off. And uh, I was uh, extremely into uh, sports, and of course, you know, the discipline of dance. So I I say that it was it was a mix of of uh, of discipline and yet uh, creative freedom that I found uh, it, that actually you're you're bringing out now. I haven't even really thought about that, but it seems to have infected my work. And, and I'm I'm certain that the concept of the Vietnam War has somehow penetrated the nature of your work as well. I think. I, I don't remember a lot about it, but I have cousins who married Vietnam vets, and I I can't imagine what it was like having a father that went to Vietnam, a war that really changed the nature of war in America, at least, mm-hmm. and then having your father's alive? Yes, yeah, both. So he came Doing home well. from the Vietnam War as well. I can't imagine mm-hmm. that. I'm sure that was... A big story. Well, he was actually, he was he was uh, lucky enough because he was um, a college graduate, so he became an officer on a naval ship. So didn't really, as he says it, uh, he doesn't talk about it a lot, but he didn't see a lot of action, as they say. Um, but it was still, uh, you know, he was still in a war. <laughs> no, and, and I think what I what I see when I look at your work and I hear that I'm like these things in our subconscious do burble up and I think it it sort of makes sense to me I'm going to go on to the second question because mm-hmm. the narrative is creating a, a nice outline of who you are as a person and 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 why you do make the portraits you make uh your work is instantly recognizable so in a sense what you've just told us helps, but is the character a self-portrait? The character, the face that you draw, a self-portrait or a portrait of an alter ego you've created? Or do you even think in those terms? No. In fact, I don't I don't even think in terms of portrait. Um, they're more avatars or archetypes. I'd go so far as to say they're just armatures uh, for me to hang paint on that have the the figure as... as uh, as a starting point. So what I, I, I was really interested in, um, in abstract, uh, expressionism, but then, you know, I started off really, I just, I, I saw the meaning in, uh, figurative, uh, painting and portraiture. Thank you for today. Goodbye. All right. I'm hoping you're there. Carl, are you there? Good morning. Good morning. How are you? Hello. How is Los Angeles I'm, this morning? I'm well, thank you. It's nice and sunny here in Los Angeles. So we went through some questions when we talked on the phone, and I didn't want to over-talk with you too much because sure. there's so much that's quite exciting about what what you do. I mean, one of the things that's most exciting for me is you've refused to be categorized as one thing or another, uh, not dissimilar to people like Rashid Johnson. You didn't let your work become about painting or about sculpture or about neon. You seem to take your ideas into whatever medium suits you. Can you discuss that? Well, yeah, I think um, that initially came from when I was at Goldsmiths and um, 
we didn't have to specialize in any particular area like we didn't have to do painting or sculpture we could basically do, use whatever medium we wanted and they sort of encouraged that to express our ideas and i used to work um, with Noski Deville and Steve McQueen in the uh, film department. And um, there was a lot of crossover. And at the time, people were like, well, what do you, what do, you do? And, it, you know, it sort of, it was quite unusual to work in all those different areas, but it's just the way I, I always sort of worked. I think and, one of uh, the things that stands out is that the idea was what was important, not so much... Uh, the craft that you were working away at, but the concept behind it. Yeah, absolutely. And and especially um, some of the medium as well was often sort of very sort of basic. Like we, I used to use Super 8 film and we didn't have the video projectors back then in 1994 were like the three bulb giant video projectors. And of course, now we have these tiny little mini projectors that I use for all my digital taxidermy work. And um, so in order to get the same sort of like crispness, we would use the Super 8 films and the projections and the loops and and they kept snapping and, and we'd have to like re-splice them. And, but it, it felt, felt very sort of, it was about the material and the fragility and that was sort of also what was interesting, but at the same time, it just would have got to represent your ideas really clearly. So I like that aspect of it. Yeah, there's a quote I read by Adrian Searle about you and medium. Hopgood's work depends as much on the awkwardness of his medium as on the novelty of the spectacle. Yes, and I think that was basically um, the, the, the projectors became the work's life support machine. And I remember when I was, did the show at Carson Schubert, well, when I had the show at Goldsmiths, actually, and I did, um, I had made plaster casts of my friends' heads and I had them floating from the ceiling and I always had the projectors floating and they were hanging on a series of cables. It was very dangerous. I don't think it would pass any code today. Um, I miss then, those days. Oh, gosh, I know. It was just, <laughs> and I remember the night before the show, somebody had actually walked into one of my projectors and it had just fallen on the floor and it had smashed into pieces. <laughs> but I was like, it's okay, you know, we'll just fix it. And we managed to sort of tape it back together and everything was fine. But um, so I had these massive loops and you walked in and you could just see all these whirring loops. And I think, you know, they did have actually um, proper machines. When I went to the Tate, I remember seeing these amazing sort of loop machines that they had, but, Obviously, I didn't really have access to that, so I just did the old-fashioned loop. So sometimes it was like a 10-foot loop with these cogs just floating in the ceiling. It was very precarious. I don't, so I think was when this I had at Karsten Schubert's gallery? Yeah, well, I, I did the degree show in 1994, and then lots. there was a lot of interest in our year, and then we had lots of galleries come, and I ended up doing like a double show with Karsten Schubert and Waddington Galleries at the same time. And the show was called Arrivals, Departures. Uh, and and so was we... the piece Can Can Dancers part of that? No, the, the Can Can Dancers came at a later date. So what was uh, the Karsten show like? And if you don't mind, because he's one of the last old school dealers. I know Sadie Coles as well is very involved with artists. Oh, but what yeah. was it like to work with Karsten? 
Um, it was very inspiring and, you know, and any of my ideas, he'd be like, yeah, that sounds great. He was just, he was a real sort of just make it happen kind of person. He was really, you know, encouraging and a real mentor for the work. Thank you for joining us this morning at that early hour in Los Angeles. And I look forward to meeting you one day. I hope I can see the show in 2021. Oh, I would love Thank that. Thank you, Carl. Thank you so it's much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Bye-bye. But I'm happy to say my first guest since March is in the studio, and it's Devin Desjardins. Did I say your name properly? Yeah, that's, that's great. Let's hear you say it. Um, very American version is Desjardins. Desjardins. <laughs> I like that like as Desjardins well. Desjardins is a French interpretation. It's lovely to have you here. I'm sure that lockdown probably changed some things you were doing in your career. Did you have, and it's, is this your first public appearance since? This is my first time out, yeah. See? This I, uh, is good. First uh, available time I could get out of uh, Los Angeles, I came straight to London. So I've been here for about a month, had to do the 14-day quarantine, and now I'm starting to be able to kind of run around here. Did you have to do it here? Yeah, so really? they require a mandatory 14-day kind of isolation to make sure you don't get any symptoms and keep everyone safe. So I tried my best to follow the rules and stay inside, but now I'm a free bird, so and <laughs> here I am. And a you are. And, and I, I, um, I was told about your work by one of mm -hmm. the girls who works at Maddox Gallery. Oh, great. Uh, Daisy, I think you know yeah, Daisy. Yeah, wonderful and, girl. And on Sunday, which I just reached out to you on Daisy, Instagram yeah. and here you are so I think that speaks a lot to the happenstance and happy accidents and willingness of creative yeah. collaborations so this show uh, aims to take a little bit of a deeper dive into what artists are doing and I think sometimes the pictures need words and sometimes mm -hmm. they don't but I guess what I'm doing is trying to find out what starts someone on the path to be an artist mm. and what semiotics and symbolism they're working with yeah. so i'm gonna start with what we talked about yesterday about your yeah. background a bit let's dive in let's dive in mm. portland oregon yep born so and raised the west coast <laughs> is an interesting place i mean i know yeah. portland oregon does a lot of chainsaw it's a very sculpture, um, yeah. <laughs> chainsaw totem poles yeah. i mean but it also has a vibrant art scene yeah i think growing up in Portland was uh, a pretty incredible experience just because it is such a unique kind of weird hippie new age society where it's kind of like a mix of these tech nerds and athletic kind of superpowers and then you get this very vibrant kind of over-the-top eclectic and eccentric art scene and I kind of having that mix of influences growing up it really kind of I think instilled in me at a young age this this need to create and this need to kind of build something from the bottom yeah uh, the west coast has a great energy to yeah. it. i spent a lot of time in vancouver and i okay, know yeah, yeah. the west coast i know people roll their eyes but until you spend time there you don't realize how special and different yeah. it is from mm -hmm. anywhere else in the world and you live in la now yeah i've been in los angeles for the past like four and a half five years so the one thing i'd say when i look at your work is the historical references in my mind are mm. every everywhere. Yeah, you're you were born quite recently. You're in your early your mid twenties. Yeah, twenty six, right? yeah. And I look at your work and I see the kind of seriousness of Picasso yeah, or of Paul course. Clay mm. or Kandinsky's spirituality of yeah. color. 
I know you say you're self-taught, but you did train in fashion, right? Yeah, self-taught as so a painter. So I'm trying to get yeah, to it Yeah, it's all. kind of an interesting background. I feel like I've bounced around a lot in my life. I originally went to, to college or university to study like world religion. So I was studying for about three years pretty intensely, um, just kind of the different worldviews and perspectives that were out there. I was very interested in kind of, you know, I come from a pretty private conservative Christian family and I was like okay I think I need to step out and make sure you know what I was raised to believe is what I identify with so I wanted to have a good understanding of what else was out there and during that time of just um kind of diving into you know different worldviews like I said I found that like I guess a profession in that was not necessarily what I wanted to do but it was more so an interest of mine so I still had this like innate innate desire to create and from there I always found myself you know interested in fashion interested in design and so um, you know for the past five years leading up into kind of my art career I was you know doing kind of a luxury menswear brand um, with one of my closest friends and we were diving into the LA fashion scene and cut and sew and starting up factories and hiring sewers and doing that and I just found um, such a great passion and great kind of like I said interest in just creating something from nothing and that's kind of where it all started yeah and the rumor is you've been self-employed since <laughs> you worked that you've never really worked for anyone yeah you, I 14 think, had your own business yeah I started at like 14 15 um, just like with t-shirts and built that for a while with my brother and then once I moved to Los Angeles so that was in Portland did that for about four years it was kind of just like the local company kids company of like t-shirts and cool little gadgets and whatnot and then when I transferred um to a university in California, I, I dove more into like the higher end luxury market of creating like more exclusive and higher end products. Part of the reason I say that is uh, oftentimes people wonder about self-discipline, yeah. how artists maintain a schedule. And mm-hmm. when you, when we talked on messaging on the weekend, you said, I'll call you around five. Yeah. And <laughs> what I loved and noticed right away is it was exactly five when you Hmm. said I'm going to call you and I thought okay this is someone with great self-discipline he knows the power of his word he does what he says he says what he does (laughs) in those few sort of invisible gestures you really get a sense of who someone is and then when I started to prepare the interview and I knew you were available I'm like okay this person's been self-disciplined from a really early age Mm -hmm. and that must have been an advantage when you switched from fashion into art making practices yeah I mean I've just always I think it's it it might be a little bit of a downfall and it may sound kind of arrogant to some degree but I've always like hated not doing anything I've always like when I kind of sit around all day and vacation and do those kind of things I feel like very useless Um, and I've always wanted to just kind of get up and get after the day and so when I switched to art I kind of looked at it as like yeah I can paint whenever I have this inspiration and go in there once a week once a month whatever it may be but if I put some sort of schedule of it and looked like it looked at it as a career and as a job as something that is part of me I want to put part of me out in the world every single day so I would be going to the studio from nine o'clock to six o'clock, Monday through Friday. And then occasionally when the weekends hit in, I felt a little extra spurt of energy I'd go in on the weekends. And that discipline, I think, helped me realize that creativity doesn't just need to be something that comes out on a whim, but if you can tap into that daily 
motion, that daily rhythm, you can really produce a lot of work and a lot of, um, you know, different messages. That was a private view. I hope you enjoyed the show. Uh, thank you, Soho Radio, for hosting the podcast and Kurashid Homi for producing. If you like the show, please subscribe. We'll be back again next week. <laughs>